Welcome to episode 21 of Everything Aviation Podcast. Our next guest has been involved in some of the most amazing and dangerous projects, including nine feature films, 12 adverts, and telly such as Deadliest Catch, Ice Road Truckers, and the Super Bowl. Please welcome Emmy Award-winning aerial cameraman David Arnold. David, how are we? Mikey, thank you so much for having me on your show. Not a problem. Thank you for agreeing to come on. David, this is this is mental story that I've come across, which is your story. And it's hard to believe that looking at it, that this has all happened to one person. Um, but it's also, I, I, we'll touch on your books and, and what you've done so far, but from reading your book, it so far has been uh, a pure testament to what grit and determination can can come. Give, give us a quick backstory of how you fell into or came across what you do now. Well, uh, <laughs> that's a funny one. Um, you've read the book, so you know, uh, I had no interest in working in the field of aviation. I didn't aspire to it. Uh, to me, airplanes, you know, small aircraft look kind of scary. And when I got out of high school, I went and took a few, uh, college classes because that seemed like what, I mean, this is, this is 25 years ago. Back then a college degree had, had a lot more meaning, uh, and significance than it does today. So I went and took some college classes and I took the classes that I wanted, which were about film and television. Uh, that's what the field I wanted to get into. And that's what interested me. And back then we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have Instagram. The only way to tell stories to large numbers of people was on movies and television shows really. Uh, so, so I wanted to get in that business. And I lived in a small town in Florida which is literally as far from Hollywood and the movie business as you can get in the U.S. And I had no connection to this industry. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. So what I did was, once again, we didn't have Google back then. We had phone books, which were about three inches thick. So I would take the phone book, which has everyone's phone number <laughs> where, where I was living, and I would go through the yellow pages and I would find any company that had any connection anything to do whatsoever with film and television it could be a cable television station it could be a uh, you know video company that does weddings i mean anything and i would go to their address <laughs> about every two weeks and i would i would knock on their door and when the door opened i would tell them who i am hello my name is david allen arnold and uh i can help you how can i help you i'll, I'll work for free don't even have to pay me. I'll, I'll just start working. And then later on, if you want to hire me, you can. And <laughs> so believe it or not, that actually got me quite a bit of work. Uh, and I was paying my bills with that work. And, you know, so when, when kids today ask how you get started, uh, I'm glad that I've now written this book, Help From Above, because I love for the new generation to, to hear my story and see that even if there's absolutely no way to get where you want to go, you can still get there. <laughs> you just have to start moving and helping people. And so one of the companies that I would visit every few weeks, uh, the guy at the front desk had had it. He was, he was so sick of this crazy kid showing up to work without a job and offering to work for free. He was just annoyed with it. He goes, hey, Will you quit coming around here? We have no use for you. All we do are helicopter cameras. And I thought, oh, 
oh, okay. Uh, I don't know anything about helicopter cameras. I'm, I'm so sorry. I bothered you. I won't, won't do that again. I scratched them off my list and forgot about it until three weeks later, one of the executives of that company called me <laughs> and he uh, invited me to his office. So I, I come back to the building and I, I walk down the hallway that I could never get to <laughs> before. And now uh, I'm past the guy at the front desk. Now I'm sitting in the office of the big boss at this company. Wow. And he's just, he's just sizing me up. He's, he's looking at me like a puzzle that he can't solve. And he, he, um, he says, why do you keep coming to my building without a job? You don't work here. And as we we're talking more and more, he, he admits, he goes, you know what? One of, I didn't know this was coming, but one of my guys has just announced he's quitting. He gave us two weeks notice. So I actually have to hire somebody now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he's looking at me kind of funny, and he says, "You know, I I know who I should hire. I'm supposed to hire someone from Hollywood or New York with a huge credit list because we work on all of the biggest movies and TV shows with the technology that we uh, invented that takes the vibration and movement out of helicopter cameras." And he said, I'm supposed to hire somebody with a huge credit list and pedigree to do, to fill this position. And he, he's still, he's looking at me kind of funny. And he goes, he goes, you know what? He goes, nobody here in this building would hire you because you have no relevant skills. You don't know anything. And he said, but it's not their decision. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> and he said, the only thing that you have going for you is you seem hungry. Are you hungry? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And he goes, all right. He goes, I, I'm going to figure out who I'm going to hire, and I'll let you know in a few days. So I went back to my little apartment, <clears throat> and uh, I my mind was blown. Here I am in this, in this small town in Florida, which has really no movie industry or anything like that. And all of a sudden, by, by knocking on this door every two weeks, I accidentally stumbled into this little hidden realm, which actually included all of the, I mean, these were Steven Spielberg movies. These were James Cameron movies. These were the biggest television shows uh, that this company was working on with this helicopter camera system. And I, I, it just blew my mind. And I thought, oh my God, I would love to work there. How do I convince this big boss that he should hire me, should give me a chance instead of hiring someone who actually knows what they're doing? <laughs> and uh, it was just going over and over in my head. How, how do I show him that I'm hungry? And as I was taking the trash out at my little apartment, I threw the trash into the dumpster. And in the bottom of the dumpster, I saw the most perfect thing and I knew I had to have it I literally dove headfirst into the dumpster and I got my hands around an old dirty disgusting torn up work boot that someone had probably worn for years and this thing was trashed it was covered in oil it was shredded and this old work boot had been thrown out and I brought it I brought it back to my apartment like it was this great prize and I put it on a nice plate and I set up a nice table setting and I took a picture of myself with a fork and knife 
cutting into that disgusting old boot with a big smile on my face. And we didn't have uh, computers back then. So I actually uh, printed the photo, <laughs> pasted it, <laughs> cut and pasted it to a page and typed a letter to this big boss. And I said, you asked if I was hungry. <laughs> Does this answer your question? It was a picture of me eating a boot and I had it delivered to his office. <laughs> and sometime later, one of his uh, directors at his company saw me in one of their one of their rooms at the building. And she said, you know, when he saw that picture of you eating your boot, you had the job. It's amazing. What a story. It's just persistence. <laughs> It, it's it was persistence for me and and it was um it was it was another thing too it was basically not worrying about how to get a job it was worrying about something that's actually more important which is what could i do for them hmm. and because i focused on that and i kept coming back and reminding them <laughs> what i was willing to do for them uh they weren't hiring because this, this is what the, the number one question I get as I fly around the world and, and work on TV shows and movies. The number one question I get is people ask if I went to college uh, for this and, and I didn't. I, I took a few film classes in college and then I dropped out. I just started going door to door looking for work. And so I didn't go to college for it. And then the next question I get is, is people universally ask me, they go, man, I I would love a job like that. How do I get a job like that? And I always tell them, well, they weren't hiring <laughs> when I got my job. Uh, I just kept coming around and offering to help them. And uh, because of that, when they suddenly had a need that they didn't anticipate, they thought of that, Who? wait, hold on a minute. Who's that crazy kid who keeps coming to work that we don't pay? <laughs> <laughs> because when they're thinking of who they're going to hire and what problems may come with each person, uh, that I think it, it struck them that, wow, this, this kid is so happy and positive that he keeps showing up to work without a job. So imagine if he paid him, <laughs> if we paid this kid. And, um, and so in an in a unexpected way, that, that opened a door that I had no way of opening. It's, it's exactly what the big boss said. No, no one in that building would ever consider me for a job, but because I kept coming <laughs> and with a big smile and offering to help them, uh, I actually got an opportunity. So that, that was my first big break in, in film and television. That's amazing. And then you, you managed to impress them again by, by staying all night and, and cleaning their, their studios, which again goes towards you and that kind of broke it for you didn't it i did i um i started working at this aerospace facility <laughs> and uh like i said i i wasn't looking for a career in aviation i just wound up here and so i don't actually know how to do anything that they do i don't know any of the equipment that they have in this building i i know nothing i literally am, am looking around the room and i don't understand any of it and um this company was very busy. All of their crews were out literally working on Steven Spielberg movies and uh, the Olympics and the World Series and the, the uh, big car races, uh, everything. And because they were so busy, the shop was a disaster. It was just a pile of junk, just stuff everywhere. And no one had time to straighten up or clean up or anything. 
They literally would come in from a movie. They would they would take a system out, get it ready, repack it, and go to the next movie. And um, and so here I am in this crazy mess of a shop. And so I picked up a broom. No one asked me to do this. Uh, I just picked up a broom because I knew how to do that. And I started sweeping the floor. And uh, I swept the entire floor of the building. And that took until about 2 o'clock in the morning. Wow. So at, at 6 p.m., everyone's leaving the office, and they all see me in there sweeping in the shop. And uh, by 2 a.m., I, I finished sweeping the floor. And then I started taking all this stuff that I didn't know how to use, and I just started organizing it. So I would, I would come to a workbench, which was covered in pieces and parts of aerospace technology, and I, I would take the stuff and scoot it around and, and organize it and make it neat. And so that instead of a just pile of stuff everywhere, when you walked into the shop, what you saw were workbenches, which had clean, open, empty space where you could test a camera. And um, when uh, the bosses came in to work the next day, they found me still there wearing the same clothes I had on the day before, and they couldn't recognize the place. It had never looked like that. It had never been cleaned that way. And my supervisor, uh, who had been really frustrated by my lack of skills <laughs> and expertise in, in his industry, uh, he just laughed. He had the biggest smile. He laughed and he pointed at me and he was so proud. And he goes, that's it. You're going with me on my next movie shoot. And <laughs> and he he knew that although I was this crazy, know-nothing kid off the streets, he knew that I was really excited about the film and television industry. And he knew that it would mean a great deal to me to be on the set of a movie. And, uh, and so he gave me an on-the-spot promotion. So I, I went from sweeping the floor to uh, traveling with him to this big Hollywood movie film set and flying with him in this helicopter uh, over the movie while he he framed up uh, shots uh, for the movie. Wow, what a story. That's amazing, especially to start out by just doing that. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're sat in a multi-million dollar helicopter with multi-million dollar camera equipment filming films with Steven Spielberg. Well, it, it was a disadvantage to start with nothing, you know, coming from the middle of nowhere, literally 3,000 miles from Hollywood. So that was a disadvantage. But in, in a way, starting with nothing actually helped me to find a way <laughs> to get in to the business that can work for anyone. It doesn't matter what interests you, if you're interested in healthcare or you want to be an animal you know, veterinarian or anything, wh whatever interests you, um, there's always a way in if you just start helping people. <laughs> And, and you just never know what doors can open if you, if you simply show up, uh, which a lot of people won't do. Just show up and, and offer to help and make things better. That's amazing. And I've, I've heard it quite a few times family members and stuff saying to me as well, any opportunity that arises, just grab it because we don't know where it's going to lead to. Uh, and that's what, what you've just told us. That's one of the, the things that, that could happen from just grabbing an opportunity. And what was the learning curve like for you going into the that industry with no skills? It was terrible. I, I didn't know anything. So I, I would read books. Uh, we didn't have really audiobooks back then. So <clears throat> this is 25 years ago. I would take a tape recorder and the technical manuals 
for the gyro stabilized camera that this company had invented were about a, an inch and a half thick. Wow. And they reading that that manual was like reading um it was like reading code, like computer code. <laughs> I mean, it was just technical gibberish. And so it was a theory of operations. It was uh, power distribution throughout this gyro-stabilized gimbal. Uh, and so I, I read all of that stuff into a tape recorder. And then I, I listened to it over and over and over and over. And uh, I did that with, with uh, books on different subjects that were relevant. So I, I read electronic books into a tape recorder. I read books about movie cameras into a tape recorder, how to operate them, how to thread them, how to fix them when they jam. Uh, so I read this stuff into a tape recorder and I just listened to it over and over and over. And although I was the newest, least experienced person in the shop, within six months, the guys who worked there started bringing me parts. So a, a guy would bring me a part and he would go, hey, Dave, what is this? And even if I had never seen it before, I had read the book so many times, I could look at it and I'd say, oh, that's a dome vehicle interface. And he would go, okay, thanks. And he would go call the factory and say, hey, uh, yeah, I need a dome vehicle interface for serial number 25. And uh, to, to him, it was the, uh, the cheese plate. Whatever, whatever name he had for it uh, out in the field uh, was not a name he could use at this factory, which built aerospace machines <laughs> to order another part. He had to actually know the name, the actual name of the part. And because I had read the book in this tape recorder over and over and over again, they could, they could show me almost anything and I could tell them what it was actually called at the factory. And so that, that was, uh, I noticed when that happened, when, when guys would start to bring me parts uh, to identify them. And, uh, and that's only from reading the book. It's, it's not from using the systems uh, because when I first started, they they really couldn't send me anywhere with with their cameras. I, I didn't know anything, but yet I had read that book so many times that I could quote it like the Bible, and um, and I knew when I saw something, you know, just from re like reading the description of it so many times, I knew what part it was, and um, and so that that was a. Uh, a very strange beginning in aerospace. And the world of, of helicopters was kind of magical and mysterious to me. I didn't understand it. And um, it, was, uh, it was something that kind of fascinated me. And uh, my boss at the time, uh, he and I were talking one day and the, the topic of the height velocity diagram came up and he, he mentioned the dead man's curve. And I said, what's the dead man's curve? And he said, well, the dead man's curve. He said, that's, that's the curve that shows you uh, when you can uh, successfully do an auto rotation if your engine quits. He said, if you're on the, the negative side of those numbers or the, the wrong side of the dead man's curve, uh, you can't, you'll just crash and burn, and then, you know, explode in a million pieces. And he said, we do for our work in movies and television, we do most of our work uh, on the bad side of the dead man's curve. Uh, so instead of flying at 100 knots and 500 feet, where if the engine quits, you can safely 
uh, execute auto rotation and land. We're typically uh, five feet over the tree branches and usually going very slow so we can get a shot of you know, Harrison Ford, who's, uh, who's doing an action sequence for his movie. And uh, so we're on the bad side of the advanced curve. And he, he kind of looks at me kind of funny and he goes, you know, Dave, uh, not many men make a, he said, not many men make a long career out of this. And, uh, and I'll never forget that. And uh, that was 25 years ago. <laughs> But you, you've not had you, you've you've had your fair share of, of close scrapes by the sounds of it. Um, I think one of them was was you were up in Alaska. Oh yeah, yeah I have. Um, I I have pretty much done everything that you should never do in a helicopter. And because I started with uh, with no skills and no experience, just a willingness to go, uh, I went into a lot of bad situations where we were doing stuff that you shouldn't do in a helicopter. And I learned the hard way what can happen to you. Um, and uh, I have flown into blizzards. I have, do uh, uh, you know what settling with power is? No, not, not uh, entirely sure about it. Settling with power, uh, they don't call it that, but if you look up on YouTube and you just look up like helicopter air show crash, you'll see giant massive military helicopters that just start sinking. And as they sink, uh, they start to turn. And what, what has happened is um, as they're hovering, they accidentally got caught in their own rotor wash. So the helicopter is pushing down a column of air and uh, to stay in the air, to, to stay aloft. And if you get in that column of air, that column of air is moving down. That's, that's how the aircraft stays up. But if your blades, which are creating the lift, sink into that column of air, not only do they get sucked to the ground, they get sucked faster and faster as you go. So they actually, you start to sink, but then you accelerate. So um, it's like throwing the helicopter at the ground. It starts out slow and then it goes faster and faster straight down. And, uh, and I have done that into the ocean. <laughs> we didn't crash uh, like on the YouTube videos, but uh, <laughs> we barely escaped. And, wow. uh, and I've, I've done that stuff so many times. And um, when I finally had a need to write the book uh, or the books, I um, had a buddy of mine uh, who read the book first off and he, he's looking at it and he goes, well, this is okay, but I, I think you should start the book with one of your stories. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And I thought, well, I've never really told any of my stories to anyone. <laughs> so I sat down and I, I started writing. Uh, one of the stories is, is when we lost our engine in Alaska and we did auto rotate and, um, and it was just one of those times where I could see where I myself had made mistakes that had put me in that situation. And I thought, well, if I'm going to write this story, I have to admit that. And that's how I got here. I just, I just sort of stumbled into harm's way. <laughs> and that's kind of what I always do. And I thought, well, I, I have to put that in the story. So I so I admitted in the story, well, this is kind of my fault that we're in this predicament. And uh, as I wrote the book, 
I discovered that most of my stories <laughs> either started or ended with me doing something stupid. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, at first it was painful to admit all of those embarrassing mistakes I had made, but then I realized, well, if, if anyone wants to know my story, that's what they need to know. They need to know that, uh, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm usually the dumbest guy in any room I walk into. And, uh, you only need to read my book <laughs> to find that out. <laughs> so, but that's, that's good because if, if some kid is reading my book and wants to work on the world series or, uh, what's the biggest sporting event in the UK? Probably be, um, God, that's a good question. Actually, I, I've been a football fan. I would imagine it would be the ending of yeah. the Premier League. Yeah, yeah. So so if some kid's thinking, man, I, I want to be one of the guys who does the TV camera work for that. And then he might get discouraged and think, oh, man, but, uh, but all those guys must be just the smartest, most talented, most amazing and extraordinary guys in the world. I could never get in there with them. Uh, but if they read my book, <laughs> they can have hope because they'll right away realize that uh, I am never the smartest guy. Uh, in fact, I, I usually do all of the dumbest things. Uh, and it's just the simple things that that got me to where I am. Just Just showing up to work and working hard and not complaining. And if you can do that, which most people can, then you can work on the Premier League. That's what I love about it as well, is that it, it, it's shown, especially with a time like we have at the moment with COVID-19 and everyone's losing jobs and everything. It, it's a sign of never give up and keep pushing on. And I think your book really comes across that way as well. Well, well, thank you. I, I think um, as, as I started writing the book, uh, it, the original title was worth fighting for. Uh, and you'll find out the reason for that in the second book. Uh, that's, that's how I got into writing books is, uh, it was a, an issue that I came across at a school bus stop. And so the book was called worth fighting for. And as my friend read the early, uh, versions of the book, he said, you know, Dave, I hate to tell you this, but you need to call this book help from above. And I said, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> And you know, what's funny is I've never asked him why he said that, but I, I think what he probably was referring to is just so many stories in my book of me getting myself into trouble by doing something dumb. Uh, and then for, for no good reason, without deserving it, I, I magically get out of it and survive and go on to the next story. And I think when you've read more than one of those in the book, I think, you know, you start to go, oh. Okay, so somehow someone's helping Dave because he's kind of a doofus head, and uh, there's there's no reason for him to keep escaping <laughs> these well, these crazy predicaments he gets into. One of the stories which really blew my mind is um, you were in Peru uh, flying there, and you were accused of messing up their uh, so, something something that's a big national icon. Can you yes, tell about that. Yes, that, that is a classic David Allen Arnold story. Uh, I did so many things that smart people would avoid. It's stunning. It's shocking how dumb I was. Uh, and, and I did it deliberately. Like, it's not like, uh, it's not like this thing snuck up on me. I, 
I deliberately was traveling in Peru with no money because in my little pea brain, it made sense. Oh, well, there's a lot of crime here. If I get robbed or something, it's better for me not to be carrying money. <laughs> so that's how I wound up in this town with, with no money. I couldn't do anything. And there were just so, there were so many signs that things were going to go wrong. Uh, and it took some, it, like it took some doing for me to get myself into such a predicament that I was actually on the front page of the national news in Peru. And so my Peruvian pilot, who's a, a decorated military combat veteran, he's explaining to me <laughs> that we're on the news in Peru. And I said, well, what for? And he said, well, it, it's a national headline. Everyone's talking about it, that a helicopter has destroyed the Nazca lines. So if you've been to Peru, you may know that the symbol, the national symbol of Peru is a condor. The condor is actually a real thing. It exists. It's a drawing in the desert sands of Nazca, Peru. And that's their national symbol. That's part of their heritage. It's a, it's a phenomenon. These Nazca lines, these, these line drawings in the sand of the desert are as significant and as extraordinary and mysterious as, for example, the great pyramids of Egypt. No one knows who drew these things. The only thing we know is you can't see them from the ground. They're so big, these drawings, that you have to fly to about 5,000 feet to actually make out the pictures, including the condor. And they were created between two and 3,000 years ago. So we weren't flying back then. <laughs> Humans <laughs> didn't have airplanes. So, so no one knows how in the world these, you know, what you would think would be primitive people could figure out the engineering to create a drawing that's so big that you can basically see it from space in, this, in these desert sands. And um, I was there as part of a crew to film a uh, cell phone commercial. And if I had had my wits about me, <laughs> I would have figured out that the production, the producers were doing really bad stuff throughout all of this. And I, I'm just there with the helicopter camera. Okay. So I'm a small part of that, you know, production, but even from there, I should have recognized that they were doing stuff really, really terribly wrong. And by the time I understood what was going on, I was in the national news of Peru, basically public enemy number one in the country it, it and uh so what what would be a revered cultural historical treasure of the uk oh good question um something that you read about in the history books throughout school everyone knows it like like a um i don't know maybe something from king arthur or i mean just just think of your most Treasure. It would probably be the Queen's crown, the, 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 the crown jewels. Okay, the crown jewels. So imagine that you, you're opening uh, Google and it says right on the front page, oh, uh, crown jewels destroyed by some idiot 
who was hovering his helicopter too close to wherever they're kept and blew the roof off. And you go, what? That that idiot destroyed the crown jewels? I mean, you you just we'd probably see red like, oh, if I could get a hold of that guy, I would just tear him a new one. And so here I am in Peru. I don't even speak the language in Peru. And yet I'm I'm that guy in the news or they're reading this thing about some idiot in a helicopter blew all the sand away at the Nazca lines. <laughs> like you would just think, well, I, I hope I, I hope I run into him. I'll kill him. <laughs> it just destroyed our national history. <laughs> and, um, and so that story is in help from above. And by the time I realized what was going on, it was, it was already too late. Like there was no escaping this disaster. And we, by the way, we had not harmed the lines in any way. Uh, however, because of the way the, the commercial was being filmed, uh, it appeared that way. And the corrupt local authorities had all made up this huge you know, crazy story that we had done something god awful. And, and that's all anyone knew. <laughs> this was before Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> so only people only knew what was in the, new, the news in those days. And, uh, and so they knew that I had destroyed the Nazca lines. And, um, and so for me to get out of there, I, I literally did nothing right. I did everything wrong. I had no reason to escape death and imprisonment. Uh, and yet, uh, at the last second, uh, some uh, like guardian angel came in and changed everything around and, and got me out of the country. And uh, most of my stories are play out that way in the book. And so I, I think that's why my friend suggested that the book be called Help From Above. It definitely makes sense. And like you, you've, you've mentioned already, you've like auto-rotated uh, in, in Alaska, surrounded by hungry bears. You've crashed into the sea and you've been Peru's uh, number one kind of most wanted. Is there any time where you thought, oh, I've, had, I've had enough, this isn't for me anymore? Well, I guess, I guess that's what's wrong with me is uh, I don't think like that. <laughs> Every, everyone else does like everyone else knows to avoid trouble and stay out of harm's way and i just don't have that that uh, when i tell people i'm the dumbest guy in any room i walk into if they know me they always go what no you're not and i go i go you don't understand man. <laughs> i uh there's a story in my book of when i was trying to build a barbecue grill and one of my best friends in the world was watching me do it. And he got so mad. I mean, just imagine your best friend watching you try to tie your shoes or something. He got so mad. <laughs> he didn't say anything to me. I just heard him arguing with his wife. <laughs> and so, so I'm, I'm still out here with a pile of barbecue parts. I can't figure out how to build this thing. And, uh, and I can hear him him uh, yelling at his wife and she's going, no, be quiet. You lower your voice. And he goes, I'm not going to be quiet. Dave's an idiot. <laughs> Who needs enemies when you've got friends like that, eh? <laughs> Woo! And he's actually one of my best friends because uh, my whole life that I've known him, uh, he'll always come out and help me build the barbecue grill. It just so happens that he had been watching me long enough <laughs> to realize that 
I, I just cannot figure out how to do like this simple task. And, and he's one of my best friends because he still came out and helped me build the grill. <laughs> and, and that's what you need in life. You, you need in life people who love you, even though you have uh, problems and shortcomings and will, will help you anyways. Uh, and, and so I, I think to your point, to your question, um, most people would have those thoughts of like, oh, I'm not going to go in there and do that ever again. But I, I, that's not how I live. I, I just charge, charge straight ahead into every situation, doing all the same stuff I always do, <laughs> regardless of what the outcome looks like it should be. I just charge straight in and, uh, and that's how I get, get into trouble that, that smart people know how to avoid. Um, and so as you get further on, you'll see this is a series of books, Help From Above. And the second book is the reason I'm writing books. And it's because I accidentally stumbled across an organized crime ring. And- As you do. <laughs> well, I, I did. And they had set up their gang headquarters at a school bus stop. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> and so- I didn't know what they did. I just knew they were scary looking guys. So I started standing across the street from the school bus stop and just watching them. And if you know anything about organized crime, you know that that's, that's something they fear and hate the most is anyone noticing what they're doing, paying attention to them and or documenting what they're doing. And so that started basically World War III and, uh, <laughs> and any, any thinking person, which, which is what my neighbors did, they all looked at that and said, oh my God, this is an illegal business. They're being protected by the law enforcement community. That's, that's what organized crime is. So no one's, gonna, no one's gonna touch them and they could literally just murder us and throw us in the woods. So we're, we're not gonna mess with those guys. So uh, at first I had large groups of people that would come with me to the school bus stop. But after six months, I was the only one there. And, uh, and I just couldn't either accept or think enough about the reasons not to do it. I only really focused on what I wanted, which was a positive thing. And in this case, making the kids safe at the school bus stop. And so that's how I lived my life <laughs> throughout those years. Uh, those are the stories that are in the book. And that's, that's how this series of books came to be. Wow, I can't wait to get my hands on that one. Though. That sounds like it's going to be a, a page turner, definitely. I think you're going to hear more about it in the coming years. Um, by doing something that, that normal people would never do, I wound up you know, encountering a really unusual series of adventures. And uh, in the case of the organized crime ring... Um, I don't think organized crime has ever been exposed this way. And they've certainly never encountered anyone who will stand across the street from them and <laughs> take notes. I and, don't know if they've ever, ever encountered anyone brave enough to do that. <laughs> uh, I like to think dumb enough, <laughs> but you could say brave or stubborn or whatever makes sense to you. But I, I just was unwilling, unlike a lot of other people, uh, I just was unwilling to walk away and leave the kids in harm's way. And uh, I understood when other people did that, 
but it's just something I could never do. And so in the process, I encountered and cataloged some wild uh, craziness. And uh, so I think as time goes by, you're going to hear more and more about the books. You're going to hear more and more about the school bus stop. Um, and uh, I, I think it's going to be one of those stories that hopefully causes the world to change a little bit. It'd be brilliant if it does. It definitely sounds like a thrilling one, and I can't. I can't wait to finish because I'm only halfway through your uh, help from above, and I can't wait to finish that one and then move on to the next one either. Because, um, like I said, from the very first kind of uh, from, I'll, I'll tell you exactly where it captivated me is when you're opening it and you're talking about the engine instruments and the little tiny needle just did that and fluctuated slightly. And since that, I was like, oh my god, what's going to happen? I've been, been stuck into it from there. I'll never forget it. I'll, I'll never forget watching those gauges and worried that something was going to break <laughs> and then watching that that little that that needle on the gauge is about the size of your thumbnail so it's it's part of a big gauge which has a, a normal size needle which goes around the the gauge and into the numbers and the the red and the green zones and then inside that gauge there's a a tiny needle that actually rotates because it's counting exponential uh Basically, it's, it's a gauge that shows RPM about 50,000. And so to give you an accurate indicator of your RPM, because you want to know if it goes from, from 50,000 to 49,950. <laughs> but that gauge can't show those numbers. There's no way to do that. It's too many. It's, the numbers are too big. So they made that little hand, which, which moves a lot when the RPM goes up or down even a tiny amount. And that was the gauge that started spinning backwards. That's mad, because uh, I know from, especially listeners to this podcast and myself who, who fly and pilots and stuff, we're just taught of how to survive an engine failure. We don't have the added worry of a load of hungry bears who've just woken up from hibernation sitting on a riverbank waiting for us to crash land in front of them. It, it was one of those things, like everything else in my life, it just probably an hour after any thinking person would have figured out the danger, I just, it just dawned on me all of a sudden, like, oh my God, I'm, I'm flying over a pack, like probably a dozen starving grizzly bears. These, these things are the size of a small car. And one of the things they don't tell you on Alaska tourism commercials, where they show the beautiful mountains and the, the, the prairies and the volcanoes and the salmon, one of the things they don't tell you is that if you're alone in any of those wildernesses, there are things that will eat you. Not after you fell down, they will run after you and stomp you into the ground and eat you alive. Jeez. That's what grizzly bears do. And, and I suddenly realized, oh, I'm flying over a large number of starving grizzly bears. And in that moment, <laughs> I'm basically a small snack. <laughs> and I thought, ooh, I, it would suck if we had to land here. Now, fortunately, in Alaska, another thing they don't tell you on the tourism commercials is in Alaska, everyone carries large, and I mean large caliber guns for that reason, because you're never safe from the bears. 
uh, in Alaska. And so each helicopter in Alaska has on board a really big gun. And which is, is kind of a fascinating thing when you see them. You're like, well, what kind of gun do, do you have? And, you know, this guy will pull out like a desert eagle. That's oh, 50 caliber. And that's, you know, that's how you stop a grizzly bear is running after you. And um, so out of curiosity, I asked my pilot, I thought, well, I wonder which kind of gun he has today. And I said, what kind of gun did you bring? And he got kind of quiet and he goes, oh, you know, I was just thinking about that too. I forgot to bring one. And now... Whew, even me, like the dumbest guy in the room is going, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're flying over starving bears and we don't have a bear gun. <laughs> and I, and I literally thought to myself, oh man, I need every nut and bolt in this helicopter to keep working properly because I don't want to land here. <laughs> I mean, these bears will chew the helicopter apart to get to us and to rip us out of the machine and eat us. Uh, that's how bad it is. That's so and, scary. Uh, yeah, and and so now I'm I'm sitting there and I, I don't have much else to do other than to just watch the gauges and just make sure all the big needles are in the green side of the arcs. So I'm just I'm just staring at them the same way the bears are staring at the stream that they've gathered around. And that that was the kicker. The pilot happens to mention. Uh, he goes, oh, and you know what? He goes, the salmon are late. I go, what's that mean? He goes, well. You know, these bears just woke up from hibernation. They haven't eaten since last year. And so they all come here to get salmon. He said, except the salmon are late. There's no salmon. And I'm looking at that and I'm going, oh my God. That is a giant army of starving bears all staring at an empty salmon stream. <laughs> They're starving and there's nothing to eat. The salmon aren't here yet. <laughs> And I just thought, that's got to be the worst place to land. <laughs> and that that was when the engine quit. That's ridiculous. Like of all the places it could happen, it happened there. Um, that, that's just mad. Let's, let's fast forward a bit then to, to Deadliest Catch and Ice Road Truckers. How did you get involved with filming them? Well, I got a phone call. And they said that uh, they're going to go out in Alaska and film these fishermen or a new show they're creating called Deadliest Catch. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And I, because I live in the populated parts of America, you know, we have 15 million people in Los Angeles. Uh, it didn't really uh, equate. I didn't really understand how this works. And it didn't dawn on me that, that although Alaska is larger than most countries on earth, uh, there's almost no one there. There's no people in Alaska. It's, it's just empty. And that's, that's why there's no roads. That's why if you live in Alaska, you have to fly. So pe people own airplanes in Alaska the way you would own cars in the UK. It's just basic transportation because it's, it's the size or well, it's bigger than most countries and there's no roads because there's no people living there. So why would there be roads? So just imagine this, this vast, never-ending emptiness and if you leave that, so if you travel across that empty country and you keep going, there's a chain of islands that go out towards Russia. And in the middle of those islands, literally in the middle of nowhere, there is a little village uh, and they have a fishing harbor. It's called Dutch Harbor. 
and it's the most productive fishing port in the U.S. And um, so that's where we're going to uh, to film these fishermen in the middle of nowhere. And it was just surreal. It was absolutely surreal. It was like going to the moon. Wow. You just you travel thousands and thousands of miles over nothing. There's no people. You just travel in the middle of nowhere, and then you land. And then when you get there, what what is in Dutch Harbor is some of the worst weather in the world. Uh, some of the buildings have blown over since I've been going there. Uh, you know the giant cranes that pick containers up off of ships? Yeah. One of those cranes blew over in Dutch Harbor. That's how windy it is there. Wow. And so we're going we're gonna to go out there and fly a small aircraft uh, with a gyro-stabilized camera on it to film these fishermen in the, in the storm waves of the Bering Sea. And that's how Deadliest Catch began. And uh, as usual, I'm there because, honestly, probably anyone else they offered that job to would have said, hang on a second. Where are we going? And wh what are we doing when we get there? <laughs> and I'm just here. I'm just like, okay, here I am. You know, and, and, so, and so here I am in this incredible life and death environment, mostly death. And I'll never forget the Coast Guard guys came in. Uh, there was no, I shouldn't say there was no hangar. There was an old World War II hangar that we had pushed our little helicopter into. And the Coast Guard guys walked in and were silently walking around a circle around our little helicopter, looking it up and down. And they just had this look of apps. They were just flabbergasted. And, and one of them walked over to me and he said, you're going out there in that? And I said, yeah, that's our helicopter. And he just couldn't believe it. He just stared at me like he had seen a ghost. Like he didn't expect to ever see me again. And that's when I found out that they had just crashed their Blackhawk. Uh, right. Their, their version is called a Jayhawk, but it's the same airframe. It's a uh, really, really powerful twin engine uh, military machine with heated blades. So the blades are heated. So if, if ice forms on them, it just melts and flies off. <laughs> and they had just crashed in the Bering Sea. And he looked at our teeny tiny little underpowered machine with none of that, no heated blades or anything. And he, he just looked at it, he goes, he just couldn't believe that we were going to enter that same environment that they had just crashed in. And uh, that's what we did. That's how we started Deadliest Catch. And uh, I just completed my 17th year of filming there. Wow. Has it really been that long? Yeah. So, so uh, babies who were born on season one are now uh, next year, they'll be adults. That's, that's mad. <laughs> kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, very. And what has been like the most amazing project that you've worked on? And what would have been, if, if, if someone said to you, oh, Dave, you have to pick a highlight of your career, what would that be? Um, I really couldn't pick one. Honestly, every, every day on my job is a once in a lifetime adventure. And um, last year I flew next to the president of the United States, uh, which no one is allowed to do. Uh, there is a, uh, in the States, they call them TFRs. I don't know what you would call it uh, in the UK. It'd be a danger zone, I think, or an exclusion zone. 
exclusion zone. Yeah. So there's an exclusion zone around the president. So if, if the president walks into this room, there is a 30 mile ring around him that nothing is allowed to fly. Uh, and we flew right next to his airplane. <laughs> wow. uh, and he had, he had asked for us to come in and he wanted to, uh, to do some live streaming. So there, there's a clip I once in a while will put up on Instagram and you can actually see Air Force One uh, flying next to us. And, um, and I have a armed secret service agent uh, next to me in the aircraft who's supposed to kill us if we pose a threat. <laughs> if we pose a threat to the president and we don't comply with what the agent wants us to do, he's supposed to kill us, supposed to shoot us. And uh, that's the only way that you get into that ring, that exclusion zone, is to have a, an armed secret service agent on board the aircraft with you. Wow. So he has that little earpiece in his ear, and they're all talking back and forth. And he's, he's just one of the guards, but he's talking to all of them. They can all talk to him. And uh, the only way we could get the next to have him on. That's mad. But what an experience to have at the same time as well, um, flying beside Air Force One. It really is. Um, it's just amazing the the places I've gone in my career, the the uh, the things that I've witnessed and been a part of. Uh, literally every single one of them in the advanced lifetime, and um, deadliest catch is one of the most dangerous things I've ever done. I can imagine because you're miles away from anywhere. Like you said, in storm surges, I'm flying five feet off the off the sea uh, with nowhere to go. If you've ever watched the deadliest catch, most of what they do on television is in these terrible storms. Yeah, that <laughs> fishermen have to contend with to catch the Alaskan crab, and um, and so just imagine flying a small aircraft through that one. <laughs> <laughs> film them doing that it's a it's a funny puzzle to solve because much of happens in bad weather that's mad absolutely mad now i say rather you than me but i do take my hat off to you for doing it because that's that's ridiculous like the stuff you have to fly through for that and um, about the emmy award how did that come about uh well i have i have four emmy awards from deadliest catch and um I used to never go to the Emmy Awards. So every year I would get an in invitation to go because we were nominated uh, for different shows and Deadliest Catch was one of them and I would never go. And uh, finally, about three years ago for the first time, I went. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, here I, I literally started my career sweeping the floor uh, 25 years ago. And now I'm sitting in a tuxedo in this theater full of the rich and powerful <laughs> of uh, the, the entertainment industry. And uh, it was so much fun. Uh, Deadliest Catch didn't win that year. Uh, I was also up for Survivor. So I, I basically had two shows in the same category. Uh, if, if either show had gotten the Emmy Award, I, I would have gotten a little plaque. And um, Neither one of those shows won. So the people I'm sitting around were all like, oh, man, they were just absolutely sour and disgusted that they didn't get the Emmy Award. And I literally I'm sitting there going, you got to kill me. This is like the best thing ever. Like it, it was so 
amazing to just, there was a red carpet. So I got to walk down the red carpet, <laughs> just like the movie stars do. And I was just happy to be in the room. It was just so different from how I normally live. Uh, I, I had the time of my life and, and we lost. <laughs> so it must have been quite elating then when you did get given the award. You know, it, it's a great honor. And, um, you know, of course, my, my team was all upset when they didn't get the Emmy Award and some other TV show won it. Um, but I paid attention. So, you know, like I'm, I'm watching the guys get Emmy Awards for costume design or whatever. And so they're, they're walking down the thing up onto this big stage. Uh, and as, so there's like this guy, looks like he's in his mid sixties. So he's, he's won the Emmy Award. So they have been, they've, you know, read his name out of the envelope. And, uh, and so he gets out of his, hugs everybody, gets out of his seat, walks down towards the stage to get his award. As he's walking down, the, the announcer is explaining his resume he goes, oh, well, you know, Bob Smith has been, you know, doing costumes for 45 years. Uh, he has been nominated seven times. This is his first Emmy Award that he's won. And, and the guy's coming down and he gives a nice speech and takes his Emmy Award. And he's all excited. And I, and I paid attention to that. And I thought, wow. Um, I have four of them and this guy's been doing this for 45 years. He's never been on that stage. He's never gotten this award and it just blew me away. It just took my breath away. I thought, wow, yeah, yay, he won. But what about his peers who also been working for 45 years and have never won this honor and I and it just gave me an appreciation to have four of those you know that guys can work their entire career their whole life's work and never get that form of recognition uh it's a real honor to even be there to be nominated and it's a great honor to win even one and uh so re really seeing people struggle their whole careers you know to maybe get one if they can really made me appreciate the the awesomeness of having it but it sounds a bit it was well deserved from watching Delia's catch and everything there david it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today if any of my listeners fancy buying david's books you got help from above and what lies above the clouds are all available on amazon they're kindle and you can get them on uh, audiobook uh, david thank you so much for chatting to me today mikey thank you so much for having me on it's it's awesome to be a part of your show and uh, thank you for sharing my stories with your audience and thank you for telling it. 